Genesis chapter 38. Now Moses was the human who God had penned the book of Genesis. In fact, he was the man that God had penned the first five books of the Bible, that which is called the Torah. And because Moses was the man who wrote the book of Genesis, there are things that we can learn about our God through him. Not in anything he wrote outside of the Bible. Moses can't teach us anything about God because of anything that he came up with. But what we can learn about our God and what he is like, we can learn through the experiences that Moses had with his God. You see, there's this account that is told to us in Exodus chapter 33 that is very pertinent to our text today. Again, I'm going to make an assumption. It's my assumption that all of us here, that we all desire to know God, to truly know Him, and to behold His glory in our life. And Moses was like us in this. In Exodus 33, verse 17, we're told, Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Now, it's always dangerous. It's always a dangerous thing to drop yourself into a biblical narrative, to think of yourself as a biblical character, to see yourself as David, and your problems in life as Goliath that you're going to slay. But having said that, you should feel free to. In fact, you should feel very confident to white out the name of Moses in that verse and to write your name there. Because this is how the Lord sees you, how he knows you if you are his. And because of this great privilege, because of this great truth, the great amazing truth of being known by God, having found favor in his sight, it's after being told that truth that Moses prays that prayer, that great prayer that our hearts echo as well. Verse 18, Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. Isn't this the thing that our hearts desire in life? Isn't this a thing that we desire to have our hearts burning, ignited, passionate for the Lord, to know Him personally? It was for Moses. Is this your prayer today? Lord, show me your glory. Well, the Lord answered Moses. And the answer that he gave to Moses is the same that he gives to us. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And then, then God proclaims his name. He explains his names to Moses, which is his nature. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And then he tells him, a biblical truth, a truth of nature. Verse 20, he said, 
You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And again, this is one of those laws of nature like gravity that you cannot get around. Because God is spirit, because he is holy, we cannot see his face. But this doesn't mean that he doesn't desire us to see his glory. He makes a way for us as he did for Moses. Then Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about that while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. And his back, his back was enough for Moses. This was the glory of the Lord. It was more than enough for the lawgiver. He had seen the glory of God and was satisfied. And saints, dear saints, you have found favor in the eyes of God. He knows you specifically by name. And he specifically called you by name. And because of this, your heart then cries out, Lord, show me your glory. And he has made a way for you to see his glory, just as he did with Moses. He's given us his word. He's given us his word to see his glory in. And we miss him as he walks past because we do not see his word as we should. He tells us how important his word is to be in our life. In Deuteronomy 28, 58, he says, If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. He does it again. He says this again. Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 through 47. He says, Place in your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to be careful to do, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And this isn't an isolated incident that we're told the word is to be our life. The Spirit of God commanded the apostles to go and stand and speak to the people in the temple. The whole message of this life, Acts 5.20. Paul commended us, hold fast to the word of life, Philippians 2.16. And when Jesus asked the apostles if they desired to run away from the hard truth of the life that is Christ, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life, John 6, 68. And when asked why he lived as he did, Jesus responded, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me, John 12, 50. And just so that we are convinced that it is this book, these verses from today that Jesus was speaking about as our life, as the glory of God, Jesus told those that thought very little of the word this. He told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
It is these that testify of me. John 5.39 And then we're told something more about this Word. That is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. And at the end of the age, we are told in Revelation 21.23 that the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the Lamb. No saints. This paper and ink book that we so often disdain is much more than the sum of its paper and ink. The paper and ink part of this book has no value, no real worth, which is why we don't worship this book. We worship the word that is contained within it because it is the truth, the spirit-ignited truth that is contained within these pages that is the back of God that is presented to us as we are hid in the cleft of His rock, that we are able to see and experience the glory of God. And we are given this privilege from chapters such as ours from today. But to be able to do this, I'm going to ask you to do something that I've never asked you to do before. I'm going to ask you to forget the rest of the Bible. Because to be able to see how this chapter is given to us to reveal the glory of God, you're going to have to forget everything that you have ever heard or read outside of the Torah. You're going to be required to think like a saint from the time of Moses. For you to be able to behold the glory of God as He passes by today, for at least the time being, I'm going to ask that you limit yourself only to the Word as told to us through Moses. And as we move through these chap this chapter and through our, this sermon, we will expand that. But beginning, just limit yourself to what these saints, and they were saints at the time of Moses, how they knew God. Because they were blessed to be members of God's family just like you are. And they were members of God's family just like you are. Grace alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. Through Scripture alone. And the Scripture that they had was the Torah. And it was sufficient for them to be a saint and to see His glory. So are you ready to begin? Have you cleared your mind? Have you opened your heart? Then let's go. Verse 1 of our chapter today is given to us as a contrast between those brothers Joseph and Judah. Joseph has been separated from his brothers and he's been moved far from them and his father. And as we're told in verse 1, so has Judah. Now it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. 
And as Joseph was living his life in Egypt, we're told that Judah was living his in an unspecified area around a man named Hira. And there, Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and he went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he named her Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son, and she named him Onan. And she bore still another son, and she named him Shelah. And it was at Chizab that she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform their duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up a seed for your brother. And Onan knew that the seed would be his, and it happened that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted it on the ground in order not to give seed to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he put him to death also. Verse 11, then Judah saw or said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid lest he also die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So we're told from verses 2 through 11 that Judah got married, had three sons, and even arranged for the marriage of his first son. He's making a life for himself, a name for himself. Things seem to be going along swimmingly for him. And then, all of a sudden, the wheels of the train start to derail. And he has no idea why his first son dies. But when he dies, Judah commands his second son to do the right thing, provide an heir to carry on the name of his older brother. And Onan complies instead of obeying. And he dies for it. And Judah is thinking, man, that Tamar's got some bad juju going on. I don't understand why, but he thinks that since she's the common denominator between the two brothers, that she's the cause of their death. And for this reason, he sidelines her. Verses 12 through 18. And after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died, and the Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Agilamite. Then it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. So she removed her widow's garments from herself and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself. And she sat at the entrance of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Then Judah saw her and he thought that she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to, the, um, turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he didn't know that it was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said to her, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by them. Now, this is one of those chapters in the Bible that makes us kind of go, Ugh. And for good reason. But we need to understand why Tamar did what she did. You see, in that time period, women didn't work for money. They didn't have careers. 
Their provision, their protection, especially when they got old, was through first their husband and then their children. Children took care of their parents. And she was being put in harm's way by the careless manner in which Judah was caring for her. Her dad was her provision at that time. But she knew that her situation was precarious at best. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She's not out looking for a good time. She's not out looking to sow her wild oats. And she does not have pots for her father-in-law. She was forcing the man who should have fulfilled his vow to her and given her to his third son, Sheila, in order that she could be cared for later in life. She's forcing him to fulfill his obligation. Verses 19 through 23. Then she arose and went, and she removed her veil from herself and put on her widow's garments. And then Judah sent a young goat by his friend to the Agilite to take the pledge from the woman's hand, but he didn't find her. So he asked the men of her place, saying, Where's the cult prostitute who was on the road by Enium? But they said, There is no cult prostitute there. So he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no cult prostitute there. Then Judah said, Well, let her keep him lest we become a laughingstock. I mean, behold, I sent this young goat, but you didn't find her. Judah did desire to have his stuff back because that signet was a circular seal that was how contracts were signed. They were important, as was that staff, which he had put up for collateral. It signified his social standing. It would have been handed down to his son who would inherit from him. And the cord, that was the method used to sling that staff across his back when it wasn't being used. Verses 24 through 26. Now it happened about three months later that it was told to Judah, saying, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please recognize this and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. And Judah recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Sheila. And he didn't know her again. And that last sentence in that last verse is given to us to acknowledge that Judah recognized that he could no longer give Tamar to Sheila, because he was, by definition, now married to this woman, which is why we have that last sentence given to us. And then we're given verses 27 through 30. Now it happened at the time that she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. And it happened while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. And then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So, she, he, so he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out, who had a scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zira. And thus ends the account of the life of Judah, as told to us through that prophet Moses, as directed by the Lord to him. This is it. All of it. Nothing more. 
None of this will ever be mentioned again in the book of Genesis. From here forward, we are now going to focus back at Joseph in Egypt. We're never going to be told of these events ever again. So let us step back into the sandals of our brothers and sisters who lived around the time of the Exodus. You see, the reason that I'm telling us this is because there are those, even those that claim that they are of Christ, who hold that the accounting as given to us in the Torah is just like the rest of the Bible, just full of stories, ancient legends. They're all man-made, man-centered, very unreliable. And very often, if you read commentaries, and this is what it just, if you read commentaries on the Bible, the men that write those commentaries will very often tell you why the human author wrote what they did. I want you to see that the Word of God is the Word of God. That it is wholly inspired and accurate, accounting of His faithfulness as demonstrated to His children. We know that it is primarily because the Word of God declares that it is the Word of God, but it is also chapters like ours from today that truly is the cake of the declared Word of God. There was a man named Lewis Sperry Schaefer who once said very famously concerning the Bible that the Bible is not such a book a man would write if he could or could write if he would. And it's chapters like ours today which is a great example of why this is so. You see, firstly, Moses was the family of Abraham. He was in the family of Abraham, a family line that was chosen, the chosen line of God. And we know that we humans love to think very highly of ourselves. In fact, we will go to great lengths to rewrite history to make our cause, our nation, our ethnicity look so good. But this chapter doesn't make the nation of Israel look very good. It, like the accounting of Noah and his drunken nakedness, like the accounting of Lot and his daughters, like the accounting of Reuben sleeping with his father's wife Bilhah, they all make the nation and people of Israel seem less than squeaky clean. What we need to know, what we need to understand, what we need to be able to grasp is, what did these people, what did the, the saints coming out of the Exodus, what did they know about God? How did they know Him? Well, they knew that the relationship that it once had been had by Adam with God was no longer available. You see, they were only 12 generations removed from those that had witnessed the expulsion from the garden, had witnessed the Tower of Babel. They were only seven generations removed from those who survived the flood. And they were only four generations removed from Abraham. 
they knew that they were cut off from God and outside of him. And they were constantly looking and expecting that man that was promised by God to the serpent in the garden, as told to us in Genesis 3.15, where God told that serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is why sons were so important to them. They realized that they were not in good standing with God, that they were not okay. Matter of fact, all humans realized this at that time period. That's why they created false gods in their own image, to their own liking, to serve, so that they could appease their consciousness. But they were adopted back into the family of God, the family of Adam. They did know God, and they knew a surprising amount about his nature just from the book of Genesis. Matter of fact, they knew four things about God just from the book of Genesis. Just from Genesis 6, they knew there that they were separate from God, that he is holy and not. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only continually evil. And Yahweh regretted that he made man on the earth and that he was grieved in his heart. And they knew that God was sovereign from verse 7 of Genesis 6. Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from the man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. And only a creator... Only the creator can, of all things can actually do this. He made all things, and they are his to do with as he sees best. And he determined in his holy justice that they should be wiped out. But they also knew that God was gracious from Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the, in the eyes of Yahweh. Noah was not that one guy. He was not the anomaly, the one that broke the mold. He's not the one that defied all wisdom. He was not that single man who had not sinned. God looked down on Noah with favor. This is election. This is predestination. And then God demonstrated something else about himself, that he's a covenant-making God. Genesis 6, verses 17 and 18. As for me, behold, I am bringing up the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And God never told Noah what that covenant was, just that it was from him to Noah. And this was enough for Noah. And then God proved that he is faithful. He destroyed all life. And he preserved those that were in the ark. And they knew, these saints knew that God was not like them. That he was not the same as they were. They understood that he is holy, meaning other than. They knew that there was only one God. But they also knew that God was more than one person. 
that it was in fact more than two persons. And they knew this from Genesis 1, verse 26. When they were told, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And what is translated to us in English in verse 26 of chapter 1 as, then God, is the Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, is a plural noun that is always used to mean more than two people. And again, in that same verse, that let us, the word there in Hebrew, again, it's a first person plural noun meaning more than two. And they knew this, this again from Genesis 3, verse 22, when Yahweh said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In the Genesis 3 verse, that verse is amazing in the language used and in the insight that we can gain from it. Because when that verse is translated from the Hebrew directly into English, what it says is this, Then Yahweh, which is a proper name of a singular person, said, Behold, this man has become like all of us. And for this reason, we cannot allow him to continue to eat of the tree of life. And they also knew that one of the persons of this God, that one of them was personal, in that they were able to actually see and talk with him. They knew from Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day with God and had personal conversations with him. They knew of the account with Adam and God, uh, I'm sorry, with God and Abraham. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent in the heat of the day. They knew of the covenant and the relationship that God, that God had with Isaac. Genesis 26, 1 and 2. When there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went up to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Same chapter, verse 24. Yahweh appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of my servant, Abraham. And even from their own generation, they knew men in their own generation had personally experienced, had seen God. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. He did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. And at the same time, they knew that you could not see God and live. From places like Genesis 32:20, when Jacob named that place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. And even from the verses that we read earlier from Exodus, when God showed Moses his glory. And then to the children of Israel. Those 
who knew these things primarily because of the word had been down, handed down orally from father to son. It was then that he, God, brought a prophet into their midst who would be the mouthpiece for God, the first human scribe for God. And he, that human author of the Torah, would be the man that would be used to rain down utter destruction on Egypt for the sole purpose of bringing glory to God. And it's the end of the destruction of Egypt, that country that was the most powerfully and technologically advanced nation in the world at that time. Directly before the salvation of God's chosen people, God gives the sign of the future Redeemer of all the elect of God. It's then that he institutes the Passover. And everything surrounding the Passover pictures the eternal redemption of God for the elect of God in the temporal redemption of God for his people then. And then, through Moses, God gave them a list of what they must do to be able to stand in his presence. He gave them the law. And with the law was given pictures, types, allusions to the price that must be paid for their, their sin. Blood must be shed. Innocent blood must be shed to atone for the not innocent actions of people. And then the covenant promise of a redeemer was once again made. When he said, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, and I will put my mouth or put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But none of this answers the question why of our chapter for today. For insight into that, we need to back up to the end of the chapter of the life of Jacob. After the dreams of Joseph have come to pass, Jacob gathers his sons together to bless them individually before he dies. And there he, like that chosen son Joseph, he speaks divine utterances concerning his sons. He speaks divine truth given him from God concerning the chosen family of God. He begins with his oldest son, Reuben. And in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, he gets to Judah. And there he says of Judah, Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? What he is saying is that Judah, the people of Judah, the family of Judah, will be the ruling class in Israel. And it will happen. This will happen through the sons of Judah. The sons of Judah, by the way, of that union with Tamar. And then this part of the blessing that Jacob gave to Judah... It spoke of the physical reality of the dominance of his lineage. But beginning in verse 10, there's something more that he says to Judah. 
He says, beginning in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And the name Shiloh there means the bearer of rest. Shiloh doesn't refer to a city or even at a group. Shiloh is, Shiloh is the name of the coming Messiah, the promised seed through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, the one who brings rest for the soul and fulfillment of the scriptures speaks of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Perez. And Moses could not have known any of this. He couldn't have understand any of this when he wrote it. But Moses gave an accurate and complete accounting of the blessings that Jacob had made to his sons because these were the words of God given to him. And again, Moses could not have known anything past his day. Because if he was writing the Bible as he thought that it should have been written in his day, the account such as ours would not have been included. But they were. Not that we would think less of the children of Israel, or that we would think of them at all, but they were given to us so that we could behold the glory of God. You see, six generations later, after Moses, long after he has returned to dust, the reason for God giving us this chapter will finally begin to shine. And now we can start thinking more of the Bible. Ruth chapter 4. Then Naomi took the child and put him on her bosom and became his nurse. And the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron. Hezron became the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amibinab. Amibinab became the father of Nation. And Nation became the father of Salma. And Salma became the father of Boaz. Boaz became the father of Obed. Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David. Three generations after Boaz, the scepter would be handed to Judah through King David. And to this king, God would then make promises that were relevant in this realm and for all eternity as well. In 2 Samuel 7, we're told that God would provide David a son to whom the throne would never be removed. Verse 13, he said, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then... The saints that lived after the death of David and the fall of his kingdom, they were given the word of God through the prophet Isaiah, told more concerning the man of God who was promised in the line of David. From Isaiah 7.14, we know that he was to be born of a virgin because we're told, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and you will name him Emmanuel. And from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. 
and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with, ju- with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and, he will, and the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And then further on, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, we know more of that promised deliverer, that he is from the line of David, where we're told the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And even later, Micah, Chapter 5, verse 2, we know that he was born in the tribe of Judah. We were told, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And then moving forward still further, the promises of the old covenant fulfilled in the new covenant, Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And this is the genealogy of the Messiah through the flesh and blood mother Mary, starting with Abraham and moving to Jesus. And in Luke, we are given the genealogy of the Messiah through his earthly adopted father, starting at Jesus and moving all the way back to Adam. There we read, Joseph was his father. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then this genealogy begins to work backwards. And in verse 31 there, 42 generations earlier, we read that Jesus is the line of David. And then in verse 33, we are told that it was Perez that this Messiah would come through. And now... Now we understand, as does Moses, why the account of Judah, that seemingly random account that is just seemingly thrown in here, is given to us. And is given to us in order that we can understand that there are no random acts in life. All things happen in his plan and for his glory. We are given this account thousands of years in advance of his son coming out of an ew relationship through the Messiah that the Lord had promised. But more importantly, God desires us to know something more about him. That this book, this book is trustworthy. That his word is trustworthy and true. If you believe in Jesus as God, 
if you hold that your salvation through him is trustworthy and true, then you must know that this book, you must hold, you must actually hold that this book, this word is your life. And this is how God desires for you to see his glory, for you to know him. He desires us to know that he is not defined by us. He is not a reflection of us. Our actions, those actions of his people, are not the things that define him. He is the thing. He is what defines us. Saints, God desires for you to know him. To know that we can truly know him through his word, and to know that his word is him. That we are to understand that while Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that tribe, those people, in fact, all people, we do not describe or define him. Turn with me to the book of Revelations. Now we can end in the end. Revelation chapter 5. I want to show you, God wants you to understand why this chapter is given and why the word is so relevant and so important. How this is his glory. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside on the, and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. The scroll, this was the title deed of the world and all the things of the world that we, we signed over to Satan in the garden. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And this is the reality of who we are, of who all people are. None are worthy. We have all failed and we will all fail. And if you ever place your hope in any man, if you build your relationship with the Lord off of a pastor, off of a church, off of a movement, you are going to be sorely disappointed. God desires us to know Him through His Word. If you ever build your relationship with the Lord based off of people, you will be sorely disappointed just as John was here. Verse 4, then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And this is the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of Perez, the son that came from that ew relationship of Judah and Tamar. And God specifically chose that his lamb would come from this union. And he did so in order that we would never think so highly of ourselves or of people. Or of any people group or of any people from any period of time. You see, all men are the same. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. But the Lamb of God... God, that personal God that was seen and known by Adam, that personal God that was known by Abraham, by Isaac, by Moses and the elders on the mountain, that God, this is how they knew him. This is how they saw him. As the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. And this is why they were the redeemed. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders all fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is, on, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them are heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. Saints, Behold the glory of your God as he has passed by you after placing you in the cleft of the rock. As he has revealed his glory to you in his word. Saints, this is your God. This is how God has deemed it best for you to know him. Not experiences. Not feelings. His word. You desire to see God's glory in your life. Open your heart to the word of God. 
pour your life into the Word of God. And you will see His glory. Let's pray.